0: Us today here on iHeartRadio and also build, grow, and enjoy. Bob Ziedman is with us today, as I mentioned, tech expert, and uh, he is going to be guiding us through a myriad of topics this morning here on a broadcast. First of all, uh, Bob, let's talk about this uh, situation with CNN basically helping Alex Jones getting kicked off Twitter. and uh, The New York Times, though, ha- however, still employs the Sarah Jong, who has a... Uh, who has a Twitter account? Essentially, uh, tell us a little bit about this story with Infowars.
1: Sure. Well, it's, it's a bit unfortunate because you know, well, and it's interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, so, Alex Jones is somebody that I didn't know about. Uh, you know, I'm I'm politically conservative, and uh, you know, a lot of people, actually, conservatives, are disowning him uh, all over the place. I didn't know much about him, but actually getting him kicked off got him a lot of publicity. So some of this action actually backfired. (laughs) And, you know, it's frustrating the double standard that's out there, but one thing that people don't seem to realize, especially, you know, and I I was familiar with Sarah Young uh, at the New York Times. I read about that. And also, I'll tell you, she writes on high tech, and she doesn't understand high tech either, (laughs) despite what people say. Uh, But... You know it's unfortunate but I think a lot of these organizations especially in Silicon Valley don't even realize that there's roughly half the country that have right-leaning opinions and they really think they're doing good. They think that they're just getting rid of evil people and evil opinions and if they're right, it's the right as a private company but I think they're losing a lot of uh, potential customers, uh, you know, and followers and creating a lot of negative publicity.
0: We've got a great guest with us today. He joins us live here on Build, Grow, and Enjoy, and uh, it is Bob Ziedman. He's a tech tech expert. He's the president and founder of uh, an amazing, amazing company, and uh, they, they basically are the leading provider in software intellectual property. Uh, he's a software analyst and forensic engineering. Corporation, and uh, we're talking today about Alex Jones being kicked off of Twitter, and uh, InfoWars apparently uh, scrambled Thursday last week to avoid getting kicked off Twitter, the only big digital platform that hasn't yet booted the uh, the, the media outfit. Uh, tell us a little bit about this, because they, they, they deleted some old posts that violated the social media company's terms of service. Tell us a little bit about this.
1: Yeah, so my understanding is that actually the posts were initially deleted. Nobody knows who they were deleted by uh, Twitter. uh, Twitter's uh, founder, Jack Dorsey, said that uh, Alex Jones was not kicked off, and I respected that because I think we need to hear all these opinions. But somebody deleted, maybe Alex Jones deleted some tweets, but then, as you mentioned just uh, yesterday, I think it was, CNN reported some article about Alex Jones still being on Twitter and he was, and Alex Jones was suspended. And I think, you know, that we've got to think about how technology is affecting our lives. These technology companies have the right to boot off whoever they want, but I don't know if everybody realizes, even I, I'm pretty involved in high tech. Sometimes I forget how much we're influenced by these companies that, that show us what they think we want to see or what they think we ought to see. And so they're controlling uh, the information that gets to us.
0: We've so got a... these
1: algorithms that basically yes. control our interaction with everybody. I don't know if you've run into this. I'm sure you have, but I've seen people in the real world where I say, oh, I, I don't hear you on Facebook anymore. And they say, oh, I'm on Facebook all the time. But Facebook's algorithm has decided that I don't need to hear them for whatever reason. And so I don't, I don't see anything from them.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the algorithm, how yeah, that works.
1: So, you know, one thing you, you're probably familiar, uh, your, your listeners remember, I assume, the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook?
0: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed.
1: Yeah, so where this company was collecting data supposedly uh, to help Trump's re-election, President Trump's, or sorry, President Trump's election. You know, and people got up in arms about this, but there's a number of things they don't realize. This is what Facebook does. Uh, you know, to for uh, to be completely open. When that happened, and Facebook stock tanked, I knew it was temporary because people would wake up and say, "Wait a minute, Facebook has these algorithms to figure out what people want and to share that data with companies and get paid for it." You know, we get on we get on Facebook for free, we get on G- Google and Twitter for free. They've got to make some money somehow, and what they, the way they make it is by collecting our personal information about our likes and our dislikes, and they have sophisticated algorithms to see which pages we go to, what we click on, what we're talking about, and then they figure out what products we're going to be interested in or what news we want to watch. So a lot of what's happening now that people are upset about as far as uh, getting fake news and getting their private information sold this is how these companies make money so it's never going to stop uh, you know in the algorithms they keep fine-tuning them and they're, they're really good but what I add that surprises me is if they work just on free market principles let's make a lot of money I'd understand that but once in a while they decide, they're going to not let people listen to what they li- want to hear or not see the stories they want to see because it's bad for them. And uh, so they're going to filter it. They have a bunch of people who say, this is not a good story, so we're not going to show it. And that's the part that frightens me the most because Facebook, the, the people at Facebook, people at Google, people at Twitter are deciding for us what we, want, what we should be seeing and what's best for us.
0: We've got a great guest with us today. He joins us live here on Build, Grow, and Enjoy. Bob Ziedman, he is a tech expert. and He joins us today talking about CNN, helping Alex Jones getting kicked off Twitter and uh, some of these other uh, digital platforms um what what do you make of this because i know a lot of people say that this isn't a first amendment freedom of speech issue because these are private companies but at the same time there's a lot of people that say that these private companies uh this is basically the new town square and everyone is there so where do you come down on all that bob well uh,
1: my belief is it's not a first amendment issue so i think People some- people get confused about that. I've run into that a lot of times. So it's not First Amendment because any private company can do what they want. The question is, should they, and should the government control it? If it is a public square, I mean, it's not really a public square, but there's so many people being influenced and so many people communicating that it acts like a public square. You know, this is really a private square. Uh, but should it be controlled because it's influencing us? So there's two- two schools of thought here. The government should do something to make it more fair, or we should get competition. I guess there's more than two schools because there's someplace in between. So one is we get competition. We get, you know, maybe a company will will pop up to compete with Facebook and Twitter and Google that will offer free speech and not censor and not filter. Or maybe the government should nudge these companies in the right direction. And I'm more in line with the government nudging these companies. So I don't want the government deciding what's right for me because as bad as Facebook, Twitter, and Google are making that decision, I know the government will be worse, and the government will direct me to, uh, you know, look, whatever administration is in power, whichever party is in power is probably going to want to influence my decision, and I don't want that. Uh, with the free market, I believe in free markets. So potentially a competitor could pop up, But the problem is the Internet has changed market dynamics so much. It's it's not like you can uh, set up a store that's closer to a bunch of people, so everybody would rather not go to that store that's an hour away. They'll go to the store that's closer or the store that has the best prices or the store that has the nicest uh, people and the best customer service. These days, you get online, and every store is instantly available, has the same customer service, so... Given that Facebook, for example, has something like a billion people signed up, it's going to be really hard to get a competitor. It's not that it can't happen, but it's going to be really hard. So maybe the solution is for government to just nudge these companies by encouraging them not to filter out content, encouraging them to not censor certain people, uh, or set up some guidelines about what can be, what ought to be censored, What ought to be, you know, obviously something that encourages violence, it seems I think most people agree that that should not be on these places. But anything short of that, even if they insult people or don't like certain groups of people, we should be able to understand that and listen to it and and debate it. If those people aren't online, we can't have a debate with them.
0: We've got a great guest with us today. He joins us live here on Build, Grow, and Enjoy, Bob Ziedman. And uh, he joins us live talking about this situation with Infowars. Um, The uh, New York Times, though, is still employing a a, a woman, as as we mentioned earlier. Give us some details on her and kind of uh, talking a little bit about her situation.
1: Well, I'm glad you asked, because what's frustrating to me is if you read about the comments from mainstream media about Alex Jones, uh, he's described as a conspiracy theorist and spreading this hate. Uh, I think the Southern Poverty Law Center, which labels a lot of people with conservative views as haters, and I'm not going to dispute that. I don't know enough about him. But if you look at Sarah Jung, she's written some horrific stuff about white people and old people, and uh, the, the, the progressive, the New York Times comes to her defense, and I don't understand it. Some of the defense is, well, this was taken out of context. That's fine. Show me the context. I can't imagine a context for saying, I want to hurt white people. I, I can't imagine what context would make that okay and not hateful. And they'll also say, it's understandable because she's been bullied and harassed online, but. You know, since when do we have a morality that says that you can be hateful if somebody's hateful to you? That's, that's not something I believe in. So it frustrates me that the New York Times goes to such lengths to defend her and attack him when I don't see a whole lot of difference. The other thing I'll mention, by the way, is I'm not a big fan of the New York Times. Uh, about a year or two ago, when Apple and the FBI were, there was a controversy about the FBI wanted to get into an Apple iPhone if you recall, and because of the terrorists in San Bernardino?
0: Yes, yes.
1: And, okay, there was a big controversy about it. Now, this is really close to my area. I do forensics. And I read the legal papers, the motion from the FBI, asking Apple to, basically, this was the most benign request from a government agency that I'd ever seen. The FBI said, uh, you know, we want to, You, we want Apple, we want you, Apple, to get into this phone. Don't tell us how you did it, but just give us the information. And Apple made this big deal about it, saying the FBI wanted to get into everybody's phone, which was not the case. But the point about this is I actually supported the FBI. I'm very big on privacy. People should have privacy. But this was not a backdoor. It was not an attempt to get into everyone's phone like Apple said it was. Apple basically made that up. And it was simply the FBI saying, we want this information, and you don't have to tell us how you get it. And Apple refused and made a, it, was, again, it was a big PR thing. But the, the New York Times actually was writing an article, and they called me up to interview me, one of the reporters, and I told them that I favored the FBI in this case, even though I'm a strong advocate for privacy. Uh, I'm also a strong advocate for security. And in this case, keep our nation safe, it seemed to just it was it was a very simple solution that worked for everybody. Well, the New York Times wrote an article, and they left out my opinion. By the way, the, the reporters from the New York Times, the interview consisted of 20 minutes of berating me about why I was wrong, <laughs> oh, and wrote, wow. an article, wrote an article saying that nobody in Silicon Valley disagreed that that Apple was right and the FBI was wrong, which he knew wasn't true. Yes. But he, he just, if my opinion didn't fit in, he didn't want to write about it.
0: Wow. <laughs> that <Yeah>. is amazing. <laughs> we have got a, a great guest with us today. He joins us live here in our broadcast uh, Bob Ziedman. He's a tech expert. He's the president and founder of Software Analysis and uh, Forensic Engineering Corporation. It's the leading provider of software intellectual property analysis tools. Bob created the field of software forensics, having invented the Code Suite program for detecting software IP theft and measuring software IP growth. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, my friend.
1: Sure, sure. There's a lot of interesting stories there. Uh, let me see where I can start. I, I got my start, actually, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Uh, so I developed these tools. I work on litigation where companies are suing over intellectual property like patents, copyrights, trade secrets, stolen code, things like that. And I started doing that, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And it's a great business. And one day I decided to make a tool that helped automate Uh, finding stolen code. And so I created this tool, and a lawyer found out about it and called me up at a Silicon Valley law firm and said, uh, hey, we've got a job for you. And he explained it to me, and they wanted me to examine every single computer in this company to see if some code was stolen or not. And, uh, you know, I got off the phone, and I was working out of my house at the time, and I told my wife, I said, wow, we just got this big job. This is going to be really cement my reputation as a leading expert in the field. It's going to prove out the the tools, the software tools I've created, and it's going to bring in a lot of money if the company can pay. I said, I've never heard of this company, so I'm a little concerned that they can't pay because it's going to be a big bill. I said, have you ever heard of a company called The Facebook? <laughs> and uh, she hadn't heard of them. This was around 2004. Yes, but obviously the Facebook became Facebook, and uh, worked out pretty well for me. But if you saw the movie The Social Network, I don't know. Did you have you seen that movie? Uh, yes,
0: yes we have, yes we have.
1: Okay, so I I love that movie. I politically I, I I don't like Aaron Sorkin's views, but I the writer and director of that movie. But I consider Aaron Sorkin to be one of the greatest writers in uh, screenwriting history. And I loved the Facebook, uh, the movie The Social Network. And I tell people I was in it because there's a scene where the Mar- Mark Zuckerberg's character is at a deposition, holds up some papers and says, I didn't copy your code. And I tell people, hey, if you zoom in, you can see my name on those papers he's holding up.
0: That's awesome. That is fantastic.
1: So, yeah, so it's been an interesting career. It's, uh, that really catapulted me into a leadership role. Uh, and then I've worked in a number of other cases. Uh, there's... I don't know if this has reached outside of Silicon Valley much, but if you know that uh, Oracle is suing Google for software copyright infringement, are are you aware of that?
0: No, I am not. Give, give me some details on this.
1: Okay, so this is actually one of the things that Sarah Zhang wrote about. And this is what she's one of the things she's best known for because she wrote an article about this lawsuit. So... What happened was a company called Sun Microsystems created a programming language called Java. It became the best, uh, the most popular programming language of all time. Uh, This was around 2000, late 1990s, uh, early 2000s. And uh, basically at some point when Google wanted to have an operating system, their Android operating system for all the smartphones that are out there, they talked to Sun. Sun was later bought by Oracle. But they talked to Sun, and Sun said, well, if you want to use our language, you have to pay for a license. And Google's internal emails basically said, hey, we don't want to pay for a license, but since everybody knows Java, let's make Android look like Java so people will instantly know how to use it. We so don't have to spend time and money to, it to people. Okay? So, so they did that. Now this has gone through the court systems. Uh, you know, it, it's been appealed. It's, there've been all kinds of decisions, bad decisions by judges who didn't understand software or copyright law. But eventually, the appeals court corrected the decisions, and uh, or Google now owes Oracle money, and they're they're going back to court to figure out how much. But we've got people like Sarah Zhang. Who write for places like the New York Times and other high tech magazines, Wired and Fast Company. These places write about how this decision that Google has to pay Oracle for copying its code is going to kill software development because everybody copies. And, and this is just crazy. This is, this judgment that Google's going to have to pay Oracle is going to save software development. It's going yes. to save software companies. Because now it says you can't just copy software because you want to. If if the person who wrote the software, the company who wrote it, demands you demands that you pay for it, then you either pay for it or you develop your own software, which seems pretty logical, right? Yes. But you get people like Sarah Zhang writing, "Oh, software should be free." Every and they claim Google never made any money off this software. Yeah, Google is. I don't know what, the second most highly valued company in the world with tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars in the bank, and they never made any money. They sell more cell phones than any company on the planet. You know, they're at least their software is in more phones And you're telling me they didn't make any money off it? That's just nuts.
0: We've got a a great guest with us today. He joins us live here on Skype Audio. Uh, Bob Ziedman is the president and founder of a software... Analysis and Forensic Engineering Corporation, the leading provider of software intellectual property analysis tools, and he joins us today. Here in the broadcast, Bob has written five engineering books, including the Software IP Detectives Handbook and Just Enough Electronics to Impress Your Friends and Colleagues. Tell us a little bit about these books, my friend.
1: Sure. So uh, I'll tell you about them, and then I'll tell you about my novels, which your readers okay. might be more interested in. But. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm an engineer who is uh, adept at writing and communicating. At least I think so. And so the engineering uh, book publishers really like me because I can explain my the concepts pretty well. So I've, I've written some engineering books. One, the one you mentioned, the last one you mentioned, just enough Eng- just enough electronics to impress impress your friends and colleagues, is a book for everybody who just wants to know enough about electronics to talk about it. They're not going to design circuits or computers or write software, but they'll understand what's going on at a very basic level. And I used to give seminars on that, so I turned it into a book. And then I wrote a book on intellectual property. Uh, I'd say that uh, it's a book about software intellectual property, patents, copyrights, trade secrets, what they are, how to detect theft. And I divide that book into three parts. One is for lawyers who want to know more about how software works. The other is for engineers who want to know more about the law. And the third part is the mathematics behind the algorithms I've created. And I like to joke that I don't think anybody reads that section. (laughs) But but it was fun to write. (laughs) It was fun because I've always loved math, and there's just not many opportunities to write math unless you're a Mathematician at a university somewhere.
0: Yes, yes. But the other book,
1: I don't know if you're into math or if any of your uh, listeners are.
0: Well, well, t- tell us but, about these novels that you have.
1: Yeah, that that's been kind of fun. Uh, so I wrote a novel called "The Amazing Adventure of Edward and Doctor Spetchmakin," and that was basically. So I love. I always loved writing fiction, but I never knew what to do with that. And uh, so I, my son, we used to go on long trips to visit relatives, and he'd get restless when he was young, so I'd tell him stories. And one of those stories I decided to turn into that novel. It's a, a short young adult novel, but uh, a lot of adults like it, too. It's about a, a, a young boy who meets a mad scientist next door, it turns out to be a very nice guy, somewhat eccentric. They blast off to Pluto, where they meet two kinds of plutations the people who live on Pluto, who are at war with each other, and uh, they, uh, these these two people, Edward and Dr. Sprechmark, can accidentally start a planetary war, and then they have to figure out how to stop it, and it's basically a commentary on racism, and, and, you know, the evils of racism, and judging people, but, you know, I think, I don't like to be preachy in any of my books, so I think it's a fun story with a lot of goofy stuff, and, uh the story of my life, Amazon almost produced it as an animated movie when Amazon uh, you know Amazon started producing independent films or started its own studio almost got there not quite. the director the producer who wanted to produce it uh, suddenly was gone from the company. <laughs> so that ended that. Uh, the next novel I wrote, I took off some time and wrote Horror Flick which is about a B-grade monster movie, which is so bad, people die watching it. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> that is fantastic. You know, I met, people, I met people in the film industry. It was a lot of fun. I got to watch some of these really horrible old movies yes. that are just so horrible that they're funny. Yes. You know, you probably heard of Plan 9 from Outer Space.
0: Yes, indeed. Actually, uh, uh, I, 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 I think... One of our broadcast colleagues, Frank Catolo, might have a, a bit part in that movie. <laughs> oh, really? Wow! <laughs> yes, I'd love to talk to
1: him sometime. Now, uh, my wife and I still still say lines from that movie to each other once in a while. There are some great lines in there; they're just so ridiculous.
0: Now, uh, where where can we pick up some of these uh, some of these books and, and get involved with you, my friend?
1: So the books are all available on Amazon. Uh, you know, I'll tell you just quickly that, that the horror flick won an award from the Hollywood Film Festival, and I walked the red carpet with uh, uh, James Kahn and John uh, Voight and Harrison Ford, Penny Marshall, and I thought this was my big chance, but, you know, after the whole thing was over, nobody would return my calls. So <laughs> what can you do? And then the last one, I'll just tell you, good intentions I wrote a few years ago at the political satire, about a world where the government takes care of everything for us. And uh, as of a few years ago, some of the stuff I predicted that I thought was really silly and goofy uh, actually started happening, so
0: it became a little scary. Well, uh, why did you decide to write that book?
1: Well, uh, honestly, uh, when (laughs) Barack Obama got elected, I was not a fan of his. And I decided to read Atlas Shrugged. I don't know if you've read Atlas Shrugged, by Anne.
0: Yes. Yes, I have.
1: Yeah, okay. I decided to, to finally read it after all these years, and I read it, and I thought, I really like the principles in here, but boy, is this a hard book to get through, and <laughs> my libertarian friends don't like me saying this. It's kind of boring in sections. So I said, why don't I write a book like Atlas Shrugged, but make it fun and exciting, and and so people will read it, you know, and they'll get the message, but it's not pounded in, into them. And I'm happy to say that a lot of liberals that I know have read the book, and they really enjoy it. And some of them say to me, you know, I didn't really agree with everything, but boy, that was just, I had a fun time reading that.
0: It's fantastic. We've got a, a great guest with us today. He joins us live here on broadcast, Bob Ziedman. Uh, joins us here on Build, Grow, and Enjoy. Now, um, what what's next for you as an author? <laughs>
1: I don't know. Everybody asks me. You know, uh, writing a book is so hard, and uh, getting it published. You know, as I mentioned, I've come really close to deals with big studios for my screenplays and my not turning my novels into movies, but they always fall through, and. Yeah, you know, it just becomes frustrating. So I'd love to write another screenplay or novel, but uh, there's so much work, and and very few of us make much money. So uh, I don't know if enough people write to me and say, "Hey, we want it, we want your next book," then maybe I'll do it.
0: We've got a. You know, great... I, I don't know if yes, go ahead,
1: Bob. I, I have. Yeah, I just have. <laughs> I have a lot of stories like this, kind of funny. But one of another one that comes to me about how close you, you that I got success in the publishing and, and especially the film industry. I, uh, a few years ago I wrote so I had some screenplays and I had and I shopped them around and there was a manager in Hollywood who liked one of them and he said he wanted to sign me up. And this was great. I went down to in Northern California. I flew down to Southern California, went to Rodeo Drive and had coffee with this guy. And he, he was legitimate, and uh, he had connections, and he really liked my screenplay. Oh, it was for horror flick, actually. I turned that into a screenplay. And he said uh, he's representing some other people. There's this up-and-coming director named Guillermo del Toro. I don't know if you know of Guillermo <laughs> del Toro.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Uh, okay, so Guillermo was just kind of this. He was directing some low-budget films, and he was also representing Guillermo, and he said maybe Guillermo's interested so he showed my screenplay to Guillermo and Guillermo said uh, yeah this is interesting but I'm not sure it's right for me I've got a bunch of things coming up on my plate the next thing i know he's doing the blade movies he's winning oscars right? he's doing the uh, um, what, what was the big series he did was it lord of the rings oh
0: yeah yeah some 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 something like that yeah
1: yeah and 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 it's like all of a sudden my manager a great guy uh, you know, basically didn't have any time for me. Guillermo was taking off, and so that's my story. It's like I came that close to having Guillermo okay. del Toro, uh, direct horror flick, but the timing just wasn't quite right, and then, you know, everything fell through. After that, you know, getting a manager, getting an agent is just really difficult. So I went back to engineering, uh, been doing well at engineering, still submitting screenplays, uh, still thinking I've got a list of novels I want to write, but, if your listeners want to email me and say, please write a novel, you know, a sequel or a new novel, I'll,
0: I'll do it. Well, it is uh, it is a fantastic guest with us today here on Build, Grow, and Enjoy. Bob Ziedman joins us. And, uh, Bob, before we let you go, how do we get a hold of you online?
1: Probably uh, the best thing is you can go to zeigman.net, Z-E-I-D-M-A-N.net, or email me at Bob at Ziedman.net. You know, I always answer emails. So far, they haven't overwhelmed me too much, but, you know, I'm still answering emails personally.
0: Fantastic. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for talking to us, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, man.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Appreciate it. There goes Bob Zeidman, and uh, we will take a break here on Bill, Bill,